this week on the podcast. That's definitely I played actually. I played with Ryan Hart yesterday in the South Beach Amateur, and his dad Dudley Hart, the PGA Tour player, was caddying for him. And he was, you know, he was so invested and excited in his son. And I'm like, dude, you've played in five Masters. Like, how are you this into this random amateur tournament? But it's the father-son element, being with this kid out there on the course. I mean, that's like a totally different. And it's obviously brought to the forefront with what Tiger and Charlie did last weekend. So. You're listening to the Birdie Dad podcast. They can't make a birdie, but they can dad. And now your hosts, Jared, Brian, and Trevor. I'm Jared, and with me as always are Brian and Trevor. And we're joined by professional golfer Will Davenport. Not only is Will a top competitor in the Mid-Am events, you also caddied in the 2020 Masters. And I want to point out, that is not something you regularly do. So I want to hear all about it, including who were the coolest guys on tour, who gave you some help, what did you learn out there? Uh, I really kind of want it all. So, Will, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. Love talking golf. Not a dad yet, but uh, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing, and I'm excited to uh, share my experiences. Hey, Will, what, what is your greatest moment so far in golf? Wow. That's a tough question. Um, I, I'd probably have to separate it out into playing and being in golf outside of playing. I think greatest playing moment or memory. I, I think my, my favorite probably was last year winning the Philly mid-am. It, it finished in dramatic fashion. That was, that was a cool achievement for me. I hadn't won an, a, a strong amateur tournament in a long time. Um, it was a validation of, getting back into competitive golf. I sort of took a hiatus when I was working and finally decided that golf was too important to me to, to sideline it. And so that uh, vindicated a lot of the work that I'd put in. And I, I just, I felt a real sense of, of accomplishment, achievement, like I was back on the right path with the game. So I'd, I'd say that was probably my best playing moment. And I think best moment in the game outside of playing was probably caddying for Lucas this year in the Masters. I mean, it's just, it was so overwhelming that experience. It was just such an overload to the senses. You almost wish you could have like spread each of those moments out over a year instead of over, you know, mm-hmm. six days. Um, but that was uh, just innumerable, cool, you know, wow, pinch me type moments out there. It's awesome. So who taught you golf? How'd you get into it? I learned, uh, I, so I was, grew up a tennis player really. And then we moved up to Stewart, Florida, which is like um, a couple hours North of Miami. And I was just, I just saw they were doing a free golf clinic in my neighborhood and I thought of it sort of as a recreational outlet. I was like 10 or 11 years old at the time and jumped in and immediately took to it. And so golf, I sort of learned, my parents didn't play, but once I started playing, they, they picked it up um, because they wanted it to be a family activity, which ended up being a great thing. And I think to share that kind of common interest as a family opened so many doors for us going on trips, you know, sharing experiences. That was a huge bonding element for, for our nuclear family. Um, but it, I learned it from the, the first guy I ever took lessons from was Tom Wilson. He was a local pro at, uh, at Martin Downs Country Club back, back in South Florida. And it was, it was definitely humble beginnings. I mean, I just, you know, I didn't know anything about the game. And I'll speak to it probably a little bit later. I know um, you want me to leave you with one tip, but I, but I think I, I really learned to appreciate the game from the ground up. And um, yeah, and, and, and so played a bit of golf in South Florida all through my junior career, played, played out of PGA National for a long time. And then the arc of that has basically been going off to college, 
Uh, playing for Yale for four years was was really where I totally fell in love with the game. Um, I was fortunate to have some great experiences there in college, play really cool golf courses, take cool golf trips. Most importantly, meet a number of really great guys that I enjoyed playing golf with. Um, did that for a few years and then got hit, basically hit by the freight train that was real life and working, you know, consulting hours and golf just ended up being immediately deprioritized for me. I, I can't even imagine the element of, of bringing a kid into the world at the same time. So I, I know what you guys <laughs> must have, have been going yeah. through. So, um, so I, I had a, a sort of two, two and a half year hiatus where I, I played golf casually once a month, maybe. And, you know, my handicap went from plus four to, to probably scratch or so, you know, I just, it, it, it quickly fell to bits for me. And then I, I just signed up on a whim for a tournament. I was living in Australia for a year and signed up for the Australian open qualifier just because I happened to be in Sydney when it was going on and ended up double bogeying the last hole to miss by a shot, which mm. was obviously disappointing on the one hand. But on the other hand, I was like, man, if this is what it's like, if I just pick up the sticks on a random Tuesday and, and go play, maybe I owe it to myself to, to get back into it and start competing again. And so Shipped back off for grad school a couple years ago to Philly, joined White Marsh Valley, and have had an unbelievable couple years playing out of there, playing Philly Golf Association, Pennsylvania Golf Association events, and have had some success, worked hard on the game. And so now I've really prioritized that, going back to work in January and in Miami again. And uh, and so I moved down to South Florida a couple months ago, joined Pine Tree Golf Club in, in Boynton, and have uh, been playing as much golf as I can. So trying to keep it much more competitive, play a lot of the big mid-am events and, and amateur tournaments in the coming years and, and see where it goes. What's one thing on the mid-am tournaments that, that guys don't know? Something that you thought you were going in for or you just didn't expect? I'd say two things. One, the mid-am circuit is by far the coolest golf circuit. Like, no disrespect to the PGA Tour, but we are having a way better time on the mid-am tournament <laughs> circuit than, than the guys on tour. I, in part because our livelihoods don't depend on it, but... It is like the the combination of the quality of venue. If if you are fortunate enough to get invited to all the good mid amateur events, like you're, you're jumping from Pine Valley to Seminole to LACC to you know some of the coolest golf courses in the world to play competitive rounds. That that's a pretty rare opportunity experience, and and the brotherhood of guys in that world is just a bunch of guys who love golf and and uh, and they have lives and so. You know, you don't just sit there and rehash every shot you hit from one to eighteen after the rounds. Like, you have some beers, you have a whiskey, you talk life, you stay up too late hanging out with these guys, and you come back and, mm-hmm. and you compete with them the next day. And is the social element is is really special in mid amateur golf. Totally did not expect that. Sort of thought I was showing up for another like USJ qualifier type environment when I played my first mid amateur event. And that was like not the case at all. I remember actually my my first mid amateur event was the Philly mid am in twenty nineteen that that I was fortunate enough to to win, and that was. I, I remember seeing the golf session in Philadelphia post a photo before the first round of the defending champion with a, just a big stogie on the first tee. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is mid-amateur golf. Like, this is so <laughs> different from what I expected it to be. And it was awesome. Like, it was the coolest vibe. And then on the flip side of that, on in the competitive element, because most of the guys out there are good mid-amateur players because they are hyper-competitive to some extent. And mid-amateur golf tournaments are are really winnable, like compared to amateur event compared to the USAM, like the US mid am Victor Hovland's not on the field, like Matt Wolf, Kamakawa that that are two months away from turning pro and top tenning in major championships. Like they're not in the field. That's not to say that there aren't great mid amateur players, but you know, the the Hagestats and, and Lucas and, and a lot of these guys who are incredibly talented, but there's not the depth of players that can shoot sixty one, which, you know, 
I don't have in my arsenal. So it, you do show up to mid-amateur events thinking, if I play my best golf, there's no reason I can't win because there's not somebody in the field who's just so many leagues better than me that it's, there's no sense in playing for first. When I was working for Boston Consulting Group, I transferred to their Melbourne office for a year. And during that time, I played a couple of casual amateur events, one of which I was paired with Lucas, Michelle. And um, then Lucas came over stateside on a couple of trips. When I was moving to Philly, he actually came and visited Philly that same week. I had him out at the Yale course one time. So we became friends, stayed close, and then we both um, ended up playing in the Mid-Am at, in, at Colorado Golf Club last year. And so we got out there. I made match play. Drew Stu Haggisat in the first round, which was obviously a tough draw, incredibly high caliber player. I lost in the first round, and Lucas, I saw him coming up 18. He, I think he actually ended up going like 20 holes in his first round match, but he was carrying his own bag. And after the first round, it was two rounds a day. And so he got the win in the round of 64, and he came up, and we were having a couple beers as, as sort of as the mid-am tradition. And uh, and I was like, dude, you can't carry your bag 36 holes the next handful of days because if, if you keep winning matches, you're going to be exhausted by the end of it. I was like, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I took the week off, so you know I'll, I'll carry your bag the rest of the way. What else am I going to do? And then he goes on to win. And before the finals, he was like, dude, this is working really well. I think like just so that you're as motivated as I am, if we go on to win this thing, like you're going to have to take the bag for the Masters. I was like, oh, <laughs> and we're going to go on to win this nah, thing. I don't, nah, you know, I'm good. I don't want to do that. Hit the shot, we're going to go win this thing. So, yeah. uh, and, and for his sake, I'm glad that he hit all the shots and not me. But, uh, but you know, he played awesome. It was an epic final match, and, and, and he got the win. And then I ended up catting the U.S. Open. That was not the original intention, but did that as well because his um, mate couldn't get over from Australia as a result of all the restrictions and, and whatnot. So, um, ended up looping a bonus tournament, which was was interesting to compare and contrast the Masters and U.S. Open experience because they were, you know, quite different. Yeah. I saw that Lucas chipped in on the, the 12th the first day. That was that would have been pretty uh, How cool special. Was that? Yeah. <laughs> His lie was so bad on that shot. Like, I, I got over the ball. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I think if it was me, I'd just put it into the middle of the green, take my four, and, like, get out of there. His lie was terrible because it was all mud and, like, kind of baked out yeah. um, over in that back left area. And I don't know if you look at the shot before he he blows it like up into the like pine strawy mulch bushes area mm-hmm. and like manages to come back down in the fringe and as we're walking up to the green he turned to me he was like that was so lucky I was like well great players <laughs> take advantage of lucky breaks and yeah. then he pitched the damn thing and it was so impressive um, and that's I mean that's kind of a dream memory at Augusta to pitch in for a two on on twelve that's it doesn't get much sweeter than that yeah so how how hard was it to focus being a caddy walking around Augusta. I mean, I, I'd just be in awe the whole time and I'd be like, oh wait, yeah, I got a caddy. There's no doubt about it. And had there been fans, I, can, I can't even, I would have been even more so. Um, my, my one goal was I wanted to have played the course, been on the grounds before the tournament because I, I otherwise thought I'd, I would be useless as a caddy if I was there for the first time and dying to play. And so a, a friend of mine, uh, Alexa, hooked us up with a couple of Augusta members um, George and Wendy David, who were gracious enough to host us for two days. And so we spent two nights in Butler Cabin, played 54 holes oh, wow. in March when, when they thought that the tournament was going to be on in April. And uh, I mean, that was the ultimate bucket list item for me. So I got I got the monkey off my back of playing Augusta. And so when mm-hmm. we showed back up for the tournament, like I was definitely there to caddy. There were additional elements of being on the property in the tournament that were still wow and totally distracting. And um, But at least I wasn't jonesing to pull a club out when i got to 12 and like hit a shot <laughs> yeah. like you know i had done it before and it, i appreciated the golf course i i like to think that it 
did. I mean, the, the premise of going there was that it would make me a better caddy if I played it. Cause you know, I, I think about the course and playing terms more so than, cause I don't want caddy like the mid am before that basically. Um, and I think that was helpful, but having, having gotten to play, it was, was really sweet just for the sake of that. Okay, well, what did you shoot then? Did you keep your full score for the 18? <laughs> yeah, we played the tournament tees. That's, a, that's how you know it's not going to be good numbers when yeah. I start. But we yeah. played it all the way back. Um, we played three rounds. I, I remember in the first round, I shot 79, but didn't feel like I hit it poorly. And I was like, man, how did I just shoot 79? And then in the second round, I played well, and I shot even. And Lucas and I both eagled 13. We were pumped about that and both birdied 14 we, we both shot like 32 or 33 on the backside and so i was like after that i was like you know i could shoot a billion which is basically what i shot in the third time that i played it but <laughs> I, I wanted to play one good round feel like i played the course the way it was meant to be played um and we played the part three which was really fun and um but yeah i i appreciated i think the the beauty of augusta is like you could show up with one golf ball in your bag and probably get around but you'll you can so easily make eight bogeys it's it's like you don't really have to hit that bad of a shot to end up kind of in an awkward spot around the green or like the pins in a tough area and you three putt. It's just, it's so easy to make bogeys out there, especially because a lot of the defense is the length. So like you get to the fourth tee box and you're hitting like driving iron into a par three where if you miss the green four is a good score. It's sneaky difficult, you know, especially for the numbers the guys were shooting this week. Um, of course it played soft. And so it was more forgiving to short side yourself and things like that, but it is, it's sneaky difficult and, and it's easy to make more bogeys than you're used to making did you have any like oh shit moments as a caddy like oh i forgot to do this or i i didn't do that yeah i i definitely had more than one of those I, I, <laughs> the ones that come to mind i remember in the parking lot like first of all i was so in awe when i i was on 13 green we were playing a practice round with Colin morikawa which was really cool by the way he's he hits it so good it's like depressing to watch him hit the ball because you're just never going to hit it that well. I remember I was like on 13 green. And even though I'd been on the green a number of times by then, like a handful of times, I was looking around and I was like doing like a complete 360, just soak it in kind of Vista thing. And then I realized I was standing exactly in Morikawa's line where he was trying to hit <laughs> chips. And I'm, I'm sitting there like a kid in a candy store, you know, just trying to appreciate the moment. And I look up and he and his caddy are both kind of staring at me not wanting to disrupt the euphoric moment that I was having, but also really wanting to practice chips to that back left shelf. It, that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> and then I remember in the parking lot, he ended up being by far the coolest dude on the property. I was trying to load stuff into Lucas's car and like, I was finally let my guard down. Like I'm in the parking lot. There's not much that can go wrong. And so I'm, I'm trying to put the seat down to put the clubs in and I'm just going on and on and on. And then I turn around and realize. Paul Casey's in the car. We're blocking the exit and Paul Casey's in the car behind us and he's like dying laughing. He, and, and so I'm so embarrassed. And then we ended up seeing him on the range and we became like fast friends with Paul and his caddy. And they were like the two coolest dudes on the property by a mile. They were awesome. Well, that must've been a good luck charm. Cause he got off to a good start at least that first round. Yeah, he did. Well, yeah. we, we were a uh, big Paul Casey fans after that. So we were, he, he was our horse for the week and uh, we were pretty excited to see him playing well, but. Yeah. Was it wasn't his week. It was it was DJ's week to to take. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you been a spectator at the Masters before? Like not I've not never involved? been on the property until okay. March. And so, you know, the downside of not having fans was not experiencing that environment, being yeah. in the tournament. But yeah. after Lucas missed the cut, we went out there Saturday and Sunday and watched. And the total upside of not having fans is we're the only fans on the property. So if we wanted to go 
chat with Tiger, walk up the 13th fairway with him. You know, there are no ropes or anything. It was just, it was a playground. We would go sit behind 12 T next to 11 green. You want to pop over and watch shots going to 15. I mean, there's, it, it was crazy how free reign we had of the, of the property. Yeah. Um, that's, that was a once in a lifetime spectating experience for sure. Yeah. I think um, my biggest question, you know, I'm a, a, a weekend golfer and I kind of watch masters from the couch. Right. And so I was just wondering like, what was your, your biggest, I guess, awe moment from changing from just watching from TV in the past to actually being on the course. What was your biggest, biggest change there? I had a lot of epiphany style realizations about how good those guys are. And I think one was how quickly they can turn it on. We played with Xander Shoffley in practice round and on the front nine, he made like seven bogeys. I, I, he made seven bogeys in two pars. I think at, at least six bogeys. If he ends up listening to this podcast for some reason, I want to like shortchange him if he shot 42 <laughs> instead of 43. But it was it was horrendous. And then he left and went to the range. And we and Morikawa joined us on the back nine. And he probably broke 30. Like he made a three on 13. It, it looked like it was a par three for him. Like it was a joke. And so we get in the house and of course, all my buddies are texting me, what's the inside scoop? Like who, we, who's our horse this week? And I'm like, but the house on Morikawa fade Shoffley every way you can get it, you know? And Shoffley goes out and shoots five under in the first round. And Morikawa's like on the miscut path. And I realized like these guys, they can hit one shot on the range and like it. And all of a sudden they're in that zone and that they can repeat it. And like, they, they're, they're so quick to turn it on. Whereas People like us, if we're, if our game is off, like we got to grind our way back to playing well, and it might take two weeks, it might take two months. Like they just find it because it's so small. Their their misses, like their margins, their their margins are just so tiny that you know they can just it can just click. So that was a big all moment. The other one was Bryson came and sat up set up next to us on the range, and like it, it was like watching the whole kit golf balls. Like it was ridiculous. It was just different. Like the tournament range at Augusta, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. I, I wasn't when I got there, but because they only use it for the tournament, which is crazy to me because it's the coolest range of all time. The right half of the range is a replica of the, the right half is a replica of the first hole and the left half is a replica of the fifth hole. And it kind of is in a V shape. And behind the left half is the media building which is way more glamorous than it sounds like it would be. It's not at all like a tent. It's, it's an all glass, like multi-million dollar media room. And it's 382 it up the hill, like into the wind. And Bryson was holding court on the range. Any player that walked by stopped and was, was like, Bryson, like, you know, show us the, the fallout. Like, and it was just different when he hit the golf ball versus like, you know, we watched Cam Champ and a couple of the other long hitters, like, Bryson's ball was just totally different. And so he aimed it over there and was just like joking around with the guys. And he hit one that hit the base of the building, like in the bushes that garnered the base of the building. And somebody came outside to see what was going on. And it's like 380 playing like 420. It, it was so stupid. Like the ball is, is being launched into orbit. And it, the hang time is like an NFL punt because he hits it, even with a five degree driver, it just soars forever. And then it flutters to the ground. Like it doesn't even look like he's getting the most out of it because it's just gone so far and it just falls out of the sky. I'm thinking the happy Gilmore scene where he's hitting it down the street and he hits another one. The old lady falls out of the window. So Will, um, when you're out there and you had a lot of aha moments, what's a tip for someone like us that someone's something that's going to change our game. So I was thinking about this question. Like I, I think, so there's, there's two things. One if, if you want to enjoy golf more, like the biggest recommendation I can give you 
And it's something that I see consistently in guys that love golf is that they're students of the game. Like they, to, to some extent, they, they appreciate golf course architecture. They understand who the classical golf course architects were, like what their principles were in designing golf courses. They understand some of the history of the game and, you know, some of the great champions and great venues and great tournament results and great shots. And like just researching and reading a little bit and, and understanding that stuff. I wish I had done it when I was younger because now when I step on a golf course and I think, oh, here's the history. Here's why these holes are so cool. I see the shot that the architect was like trying to get me to play. I can see how they use the land, things like that. I enjoy that round of golf so much more. And I appreciate that golf course so much more with just a little bit of that perspective than I did when I was 16. And I was really just concerned with how many greens I was going to hit. And, you know, any, any, Reese Jones golf course or Fazio golf course was the same as a Rainer or whatever to me. Like that, that, that has been a total paradigm shift for me. And I see that in a lot of the guys that just love being on the golf course. They, they also love golf and its history and its design and, and just uh, the richness of the game is beyond just, just shot making. So that, that would be my piece on that. So, and I'm pretty passionate about, about golf courses and, and, and things like that. In terms of playing golf, that's, that's, I would say the biggest one for me, it's, it's very mental. I think like in a lot of ways you have the game that you have, but most breakthrough time for me was that I had to stop being afraid of the bad shot in order to hit the good shot. You notice that on a hole with water in play, like the average amateur golfers, you know, shot making ability plummets because there's water in play and like you have to be willing to accept the worst case scenario before you hit the shot. Like that can't seem like Armageddon to you or you won't hit the shot. You'll either succumb to it and hit it in the water or you'll end up hedging so far away from the water that the outcome is just as bad. Like I was listening to Tiger talk about it and he was, he was saying you have to see the shot that's required and execute it and leave all of the rest on the outside. And that's what he was telling Charlie is like 11 year old son, but that's a great, cause like that's a blank canvas for somebody that he wants to be great at golf. You have to look at the shot and and say, okay, like, yes, there's out of bounds down the right, whatever. This shot calls for a 10-yard fade off the left edge of the fairway. That's the shot I'm going to try to hit. If I don't pull off that shot, maybe the consequences are more dire than if it was like a wide open hole. But I know the shot that needs to be struck, and that's the shot I'm going to try to hit. Consequences be damned. So I think when I when I am willing to accept the fact that the the bad shot might happen and then ignore that compartmentalize that and then just step up and hit the shot that I know needs to be hit. I'm not going to pull it off all the time, but I'm much more likely to do that. So I have a random question. You bring up Charlie Woods. So you obviously watched the PNC, uh, recently. Um, did you, did you see the note that, uh, Charlie Woods left for, um, Justin Thomas and his dad? I did. Yeah. That was pretty good. He's, he le- takes after his father. Yeah. So like, that's, that's a question just, you know, caddying versus playing and you're on the mid-am and, and, you know, caddying at, at Augusta, how much kind of crap talking actually goes on between players on, you know, within a round? Especially the mid-am circuit, because the community is a bit smaller, the guys all know each other really well. So you're constantly ribbing the guy, like, on the practice screen, whatever. I mean, it's, it's all tongue in cheek. Like there are very few bad relationships that I've seen on in the mid-end world because you know, the guys just love being out there too much. 
it's you're you're pretty friendly most of the time with at least one of the guys that you're paired up with. So yeah, I, I if somebody hits a bad shot, the best way to lighten the mood is to say something like, "Wow, that was a horrible golf shot." Like you know, <laughs> yeah. but, like that, it's not like they don't know it. So you know, and they'll give it right back. So there's a there there's definitely a bit of that, especially. In the mid-end world, we're all losing distance like one year at a time. So whoever hits the long ball, they're going to let you know on almost every hole, um, <laughs> and and so that's pretty fun. And um, yeah, it's it's that community of guys like gives it and takes it, and they 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 love that back and forth and that exchange. And and Charlie like totally personified that kind of attitude with JT, where you know they're boys, but you can tell that that they're. Uh, they're playing ten dollar Nassau's on the side, and and Charlie wants a piece of it. You know, I I really like that, and that that kind of competitive fire. If you can foster that, that's another thing for somebody who's you know a, a club player who maybe doesn't play a lot of events, or when it comes time for club championships or whatever struggles. The more you can foster that kind of competitive environment and play a ten dollar Nassau, but hold out all your three footers. You know, that that the that get comfortable with that discomfort so that when that when it inevitably comes in a situation that matters to you more that that you're prepared for it who who did you come away with uh, some of your best relationships with your experience on the masters did you guys befriend anyone really great yeah a lot of guys i was really impressed by the quality of just dude out there um i think we talked a lot with adam scott because we played a practice with him in the at the open and then um, we chatted with him a bit at the Masters. I mean, he's a really switched on guy. Like he's exactly as classy as you would expect him to be. Um, and I, I, I remember I was at the Walker Cup at National many years ago, and Adam Scott was out there, and he was like in board shorts and flip flops, and he had the hottest girl I'd ever seen with him, and you know was drinking a beer, and and uh, and then the next day, and, and we walked around with him, and he was like really cool guy. And then the next day, he shot the Shinnecock course record, and I remember thinking like. On that Monday, I was like, he accomplished more of my dreams in that two-day stretch than, like, I probably will in my entire <laughs> life. Like, and, and he just couldn't be cooler about it. You know, like, he is suave and personified. Uh, and, and he's awesome, like, really willing to encourage – like, he was very encouraging to Lucas. Like, he wanted to see Lucas succeed. Helpful, like, in learning the golf courses and stuff. I, I really respected him. Paul Casey, like, he was talking art to – Nabolo and he's talking, you know, comedy clubs to somebody else. Like he's a, a man of the world, like super friendly, practical joker. Um, he and his caddy were like just so funny, um, and so I felt like we fostered pretty good relationship with them. And we we were lucky. We played practice with a lot of good guys. With Max Homa, huge Max Homa guy, as cool as he seems in golf media, he's absolutely that cool in person. I was actually telling the the Philly medium that I want. I listened to his podcast. Um, about coming back and getting his card again and uh, and you know the resilience that he talked about and the, the fortitude required to just keep plugging even though he was shooting 85 and you know corn fairy type events and stuff and uh, and I listened to it that morning it legitimately inspired me and I thought about it during that tournament and it wasn't just random that I ended up winning that event I really felt like I drew on some of his you know learnings from that discussion and I told him that story expecting to get the you know the Oh yeah, that's great. And he was so pumped and he was like hanging on every word of that story. And then he went on his podcast later and talked about how he really enjoyed hearing that like somebody listened to that and was inspired by it. And he's just like the most genuine guy. I I was so impressed. And Xander was great. And Patrick Canley, we played with us open and masters and he's an awesome dude. It was just one good guy after another. I don't know. I was kind of like, I could totally see myself out here week after week. If I was 12 shots better, like, 
hang out with these guys, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. And so, so just to clarify your first mid-am back, you won, correct? The Philly? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was actually my, because I was living in Australia from age 25 to 26. And, uh, and so my first one was when I was 26. So, so you, did you know those guys? I mean, you'd been hiatus for two and a half years till you got back to the the mid-am scene. Did you, um, do you know most of those guys you were competing against at that point? Some of them, some of them, not, not most of them. Most of the ones that I've gotten close with are guys that I didn't know in the amateur and, and junior golf circles. Um, and in part because I moved to Philly and was doing grad school in Philly and hadn't played really any amateur golf up there in the past. But uh, the circle of friends I developed in that area out of the club and out of the tournament circuits were relatively new to me, but were so welcoming. Like I sort of thought you'd finish the round, threw your clubs in the car and left. And that's totally not the way that mid-amateur tournaments go down. Um, and so, you know, they, they made a real effort to make me have a seat at the table and, and chat with them and learn from them and understand what, what the mid am lifestyle is really about because I'm juggling the different responsibilities of a mid amateur for the first time. Right. I was just trying to get your, you know, trash talk angle. You win the first mid am back. These guys barely know you. you just like mic drop and just like, you know, well, give it to yeah. them. Or, I, sort of, I, 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 of course, thought that I was going to win them all after that one and you know, yeah. I barely yeah. won any sense. So uh, it, it, it was a learning that. I think the I was so impressed with the quality of play at the same time. Like at the at the US Mid Am level, it's certainly the easiest way to get in the Masters. It's like win a US Mid Am. There are only, you know, ten to fifteen guys who are really elite players versus in the USAM there might be hundred and fifty who like could make the PGA tour. But in a local or regional, like a Philly Golf Association Mid Am event, there there's there it's pretty stout competition. And so, you know, winning my first one, I was kinda like, Oh, maybe Maybe, maybe this could be a trend, and, and I was humbled pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Game of golf, right? Yeah. Golf, <laughs> golf has a way of knocking you down a peg. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I liked, your, I liked your quote. I read a quote after you won the mid-am, and it's, you said, golf will beat you down, but days like this put you right back on top of the world. And That's I was just right. thinking, like, you know, that top of the world, how long does that last, right? I mean, it's usually like a day or two in golf. It's, it's, you have to be really intentional about not letting it fade because I, I, I really believe, like, most of your days on the golf course are disappointing in some way or another. Like the the way you play on the golf course, I, I walk off the golf course more than 50% of the time wishing I had played differently. And so if that weighs the same as a good round or a good tournament, then the net of that will be that you are unhappy playing tournament golf. And that can't be if you, if you like golf. So you have to enjoy the good tournaments and the wins and the good rounds much more than you loathe the bad tournaments and the bad rounds. So I think it's really important to learn how to embrace, accept, and enjoy the bad day on the golf course. Um, and and Lucas does that extremely well. Like catting for him at the Masters, you couldn't, you, you wouldn't know what he was shooting by his attitude. He's like the most level-headed, even-keeled kind of player to caddy for. And that experience is so much more enjoyable for him, for me, for his family, for everyone if, if you just accept the shot that you've just hit and go try to hit the, the next one the best you can. And when you walk off the golf course, you enjoy the fact that you just played golf. And even though it feels like the end all be all when like you have the chipping yips or like you can't make a five footer or whatever, six months from now, that will be a distant memory, you know, and you have to just keep some perspective and remember that six months prior, you won this mid-am event, mid-am event or, you know, you, you were great at that certain thing that, that you're not doing well now. And so you have to, you have to be willing to embrace that a lot of the time you're going to be unhappy with the way you're hitting or playing or scoring and, and you need to enjoy it anyway. So what's coming up next with you in golf and where can listeners find you? 
So I'm I'm starting back work again in a few weeks. Uh, my my little hi- grad school hiatus, you know, fantasy world has has come to an end. But uh, but this time, mid amateur golf is is going to be top priority for me, uh, extra occupationally. So I'm I'm playing a couple events probably in January in Florida. Um, depending on I signed up a little late, so depending on if I can get in, but maybe New Year's or, or First Coast Amateur in Jacksonville, some of the amateur stuff. And then my partner, Mike Smith, and I will be headed out to, to play the U.S. four ball um, out of Chambers, which we're very excited about. We've come close and qualified in the last couple of years, so we were able to get it over the line this year. And USGA events, I mean, they, they hold a special place. So um, we're going to cherish that experience and um, have a, a few good mid-amateur events coming up. Um, the Crumb Cup this year was canceled, so I'm counting down the days until until next year's. So that'll be my first time playing that event. So I'm thrilled to have that opportunity. And yeah, it's going to be a season, hopefully full of, of strong amateur events. Hopefully we have this this viral situation somewhat tamed and, and we can enjoy traveling and playing golf again. That would be really nice. For sure. And Brian's out there by Chambers Bay. So I know he's he's circling that date. Yeah. Yeah. Come out and watch it, man. I played it this summer and it's in great shape. You're going to love it. Yeah, ah, we'd so love that. Fun. We would absolutely yeah. love that. We'll have to tee up if we if we miss match play, we'll play together. So hopefully we won't play together. But I'd love to <laughs> see you out yeah. there. Yeah. At least at least we'll yeah. get beer. Yeah, hopefully uh, I'm, I'm definitely not a scratch golfer, so um, you have to bear bear with me when we get out there. But uh, yeah, That's if you right. can if, if you can manage my golf swing, then uh, I'll have some beers with you. That's it for the show this week. Go follow Will Davenport. Let's root for him on the upcoming season. Super cool guy to talk with. And be sure to go over to iTunes and drop us a five-star review. You just listen for free. Now here's the deal. Go to our website at birdiedads.com and join us. You will get our golf starter's guide and our golf coloring book for kids free right now by signing up. It just takes an email. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll see you next time.